Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Just a quick note, we talk about gun violence and suicide a lot in this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by my regular co-host, Dara Lynn. Hello. And Vox Politics reporter, Nicole Neria. Hey. It's been one week since an 18-year-old gunman shot and killed 19 children and two adults at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And frankly, it's just exhausting to keep having the same conversations after mass shootings like this. And especially right now, it's hard not to feel utterly hopeless about the chances of reducing gun violence in the U.S. But it's important to keep talking about the science of gun violence and the political factors preventing the government from taking action. So today, we're going to be looking at what we know about America's gun problem through three different white papers. The papers focus on which gun control policies do work, other techniques like police and schools intended to prevent shootings, and how state legislatures respond to mass shootings. So our first white paper is from the RAND Corporation, which put together a very, very long book-length review of the evidence on gun control laws called The Science of Gun Policy. This is actually the second edition of their review. Um, The first one came out in 2018, and the second one came out last year. The lead author is Rosanna Smart, but she's one of 11 credited authors, Um, and so it's it's really a team effort, and and we give credit to, to everyone at RAND who worked on this. It's the most comprehensive review of evidence around gun policies that I've seen, but um, there are also a lot of smaller studies being reviewed here, um, and so it's uh, building on the work of dozens and dozens of people. So the RAND authors go through a long list of policies. They find as many studies as they can about those policies, and then they categorize them based on the strength and conclusions of those studies. And uh, they sort of divide the strength of evidence into a few categories. So supportive evidence, which is their highest category, means that they found at least three studies of at least decent design looking at different data sets which have found effects of the policy in one direction or another. Uh, Moderate evidence means that at least two decently designed studies found effects. Limited evidence means at least one. And inconclusive means that studies reach different conclusions. And to be clear, by the way, here, decently designed, like the way that the Rand authors put it is without serious methodological flaws. Like it's worth kind of underlining just 
how reasonable the bars they're putting to like inclusion in this study in this meta review are because there are so few studies that clear those bars on so many of the policies they examine that is true yeah i mean it's uh thankfully people don't like randomly give away guns very often and so uh evidence on gun control tends to be sort of comparing states to each other or countries to each other or, or comparing across time. And that's just always going to be a, a weaker or, or more limited methodology in some ways. But for talking about the RAND paper, supportive is better than moderate, moderate's better than limited, limited's better than inconclusive is, is the basic takeaway. One of their big findings, which I want to emphasize here, is that the evidence for effects on mass shootings was inconclusive across the board for every intervention they look at. So mass shootings are obviously more common than they should be, but they're pretty rare compared to other gun deaths, and that means it's really, really hard to find out if anything works to prevent them. The RAND authors find limited evidence, so at, at least one study, that licensing and permitting requirements, waiting periods, and laws that make adults liable if their children use their guns work to reduce total suicides. They find moderate evidence that waiting periods reduce total homicides and some moderate evidence that stand your ground laws that allow use of guns in sort of self-defense, home defense situations increase total homicides. They also find moderate evidence that banning gun ownership by people with domestic violence restraining orders against them reduces domestic violence related murders and some limited evidence that banning gun ownership by people who have been adjudicated mentally ill, which is a fairly stringent category. That means you were either found not guilty in a court of law by reason of mental illness, or you were committed to inpatient psychiatric care in recent years. So limited evidence that banning people in that situation reduces overall violent crime. So that was a lot, a lot to dump. But the big takeaway is that there just isn't enough evidence on a large number of other regulations that are often adopted or proposed to deal with gun violence. Uh, you'll note that I did not say anything about bans on particular types of, of assault weapons, like those covered by the federal assault weapons ban. My reading of the RAND report is not, that does nothing, but we just like don't know enough about what it does because the evidence is limited. So... Nicole, you, you just helped write Vox's sort of omnibus explainer on gun violence and America's gun problem. Uh, so you've been digging into this evidence a lot longer than I have. What's your sort of read on the state of the evidence on what works and what doesn't in terms of, of gun laws? Yeah, I mean, I think just to echo what you've already said, and not to be a bummer here, but um, I think what strikes me most about these kinds of literature reviews is just how little we know about the effects of gun policy. There were a lot of commonly talked about policies, especially in the wake of Valde, that Rand wasn't able to find conclusive evidence for in terms of their impact on gun violence or, or even good studies that met their criteria for consideration. For example, they didn't find good studies on gun-free zones and laws allowing armed staff in K-12 schools, which has become a major Republican talking point. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. There was also only inconclusive evidence for the effects of permitless carry laws, like the one that Texas pioneered last year, as well as extreme risk protection orders, which are also known as red flag laws that allow law enforcement to temporarily ban someone who's an imminent risk to themselves or others. And um, as already mentioned, they couldn't determine whether any of the policies that they looked at had any discernible impact on mass shootings, which are relatively rare events, and that makes it really hard to study. 
But I think it's also sort of worth mentioning that this like lack of rigorous research isn't accidental. The U.S. government hasn't historically sponsored research on gun violence in any significant and or sustained way, and, and that needs to change. And it's just like so much more difficult to find reasoned solutions to gun violence when we can't even answer basic questions about the problem. Um, like I encountered this in my own reporting over the last week. We don't even know how many private individuals own guns in America. Researchers have tried to estimate it, but we just don't know for certain because there's no countrywide database where people register whether they own guns and there's a thriving black market for them. So like just to the fact that we don't have these answers should tell you a lot about the state of the body of research on this topic and also maybe about the federal government's kind of willful ignorance here. But, you know, to the extent that we do have evidence for some um, some policies that might be able to avert deaths, like the RAND paper is the best evidence we have. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's definitely I agree with you that it's it's worth pointing out that the positive research is something that isn't accidental, but it's also not unfixable. Right. And the RAND study does a lot to both kind of point out the role of the historical like reticence to federally fund gun research and also points out that like that recent changes in that attitude are a lot of why there's suddenly a lot more like you know the fact that they initially released this paper just a few years ago and have already had enough subsequent research come out that they had to update it is an indication that the pace of research is picking up and part of that is because in 2019 congress did start kind of opening the tap for federally funded gun research a little bit but even in the meantime, you know, given that to a certain extent, the exact same political landscape that makes it difficult for Congress to pass federal changes to gun policy also makes it difficult for Congress to appropriate substantial funds to gun violence research. The latter of those is something that the private sector still can step into more aggressively. And there are pretty specific calls in the RAND study for how a better public infrastructure can be built of knowledge of what works and what doesn't in gun violence policy, even without getting Congress to fully and permanently invest in using federal funds to build that body of, of knowledge out. And I think it's worth it's worth pointing out that it's not unfixable, partly because right now, there is a kind of deep cri de core level of frustration among supporters of stricter gun regulation right now, which, among other things, is expressing itself in an impatience with technocratic scale reforms. Like, there is a lot, you know, there, there does, there is a much greater understanding of the the costs and benefits of people being a lot more aware now than they were, say, when Sandy Hook happened a decade ago, that the moderate background check expansion proposed after Sandy Hook is not necessarily something that is well supported in the literature to like substantially reduce gun violence has made people I think a little bit cautious of anything that seems incremental. And that means that there's probably a little less like it may seem radically inadequate to the scope of the problem to say, you know, what we really need to do is lobby deep pocketed foundations to sponsor a lot more research on state level gun reforms and what works and what doesn't. But like, that does appear to be a closable gap that could result in 
an improvement in knowing what reforms could even be pushed for. There's a really broad range of stuff in this RAND study that there isn't sufficient evidence one way or the other for. And it's hard to direct a political program if you don't know which of the things on the table are small changes that could have real impacts versus small changes that are just going to be cosmetic. Yeah. And I think it's also like one thing that the paper points out is, you know, there hasn't there's been a lot of research on the impact on gun homicides and, and suicides um, in terms of gun policy. But I think also keeping an eye on on some of the factors that stakeholders might be interested in, like gun owners and like those are the people who, whose minds need to change on the subject. So um, like directing research towards that as well, I think is something that I thought was an interesting suggestion from the paper. But like that, this is all to say, you know, I think at this point, even if there is some evidence uh, for any particular policy, that should be taken seriously by policymakers at this point, um, especially in the wake of Uvalde. I think that's an important point, especially with with something like this that's inherently difficult to study. Like, uh, if you're thinking about policies for, like, COVID masking or something, there have been large randomized trials about about using masks and whether that reduces COVID transmission. There have been very carefully designed studies about comparing districts that have mandates and don't. We have thousands of school districts and counties that all have slightly different rules on this. It's just like a much more fertile ground. And so I would expect governors to look at a research base like that and and sort of actually demand evidence for things. Um, We have a lot of social problems where we don't have that level of understanding about it. Like, in some ways, it's easier to do public health research on uh, opioid overdoses than than gun violence uh, because sort of some of the political dynamics around it are not as fraught. They're plenty fraught, but not as fraught as gun violence. Um, but we still don't have like a super good evidence based sort of solution to get opioid deaths down to where they were even five years ago, if not ten years ago. That does not exculpate state-level officials from trying different things to to bring those numbers down. And I feel like a, a similar logic applies for shootings, where you have to be making decisions under uncertainty, and the uncertainty is much greater given the paucity of knowledge about it. But not acting in face of, of conflicting research is also a decision. Oh, yeah. No, and I, I, think, I think that in general, one of the truths of where we are in the gun debate right now is that the action items for policymakers and the action items for like extremely concerned citizens are by their nature going to be different because the extremely concerned citizens have a you know are are like if what the extreme if if what the concerned citizens wanted was what the policymakers were going to do we would have been in a different place 10 years ago and so it's worth i think like throughout this episode it's worth understanding that there is kind of there is a menu of things that policymakers should be considering and that that is that may not be the same as the things that if you personally are really upset about the state of America, that you should be like what you should be doing to change that situation for reasons for partly for political reasons that we'll get into later in the episode, but partly just because there's a triage, like there are triage concerns, right? Like the asks that you're making of policymakers are going to be the most important, most likely to be efficacious things. They're not going to be, you know, the full menu of everything that they could try. And also the ones that are most politically feasible, like I think Grant specifically focused on policies that had already been enacted. 
at the state level in the U.S. because, like, you know, it's we're never going to be Australia who just took all the guns away, no matter how effective that was. Yeah, and and certainly if we were to become Australia, that's not something that's going to happen on... There, we're not going to have, like, one state decide to try to be Australia because of the whole, like, federal court situation. So it's definitely something that, like... If you're going to develop a theory of change that gets to that endpoint, you're not going to be going through, we're going to test pilot this in a few states, and then we're going to build a body of evidence. But I do kind of want to talk about the adequacy problem um, in terms of, you know, what the RAND study is looking at, because in addition to RAND deliberately limiting the scope of their review to things that have already been tried somewhere in the U.S., um, or like could plausibly be the stuff that they find the strongest evidence for. I'm thinking in particular here about child safety requirements in gun storage and making it a felony to have an unsecured gun in a home with a child. Like that is arguably the most supported policy in reducing firearm injuries and deaths in the whole RAND study, but it's also something that I've seen a little bit of specific frustration within the last week with, you know, people targeting it in particular as an incrementalist reform that is inadequate to the scope of the problem because the real problem is having guns in the house at all. And so I'm wondering what you folks think about think about that disconnect and the the problem partly because mass shootings are so often the occasion that causes us to discuss gun violence generally, but also I think partly just because of like the moment right now and the fact that a critical mass of people are not particularly interested in moderately reducing gun deaths, that that is not, that's not where they think the country needs to go. And so the, the kind of disconnect between the policies that we can have the highest confidence in and the policies that have the potential to get America to where some of the people who are most impassioned about it right now want it to be. I'm interested in Nicole's thoughts on this, but like we're not going to get it to where the people who are most passionate about this want it to be. One example I often use is, is Switzerland or Finland, which are both countries that have a large number of guns uh, compared to sort of pure European countries. And they have about 70% lower uh, gun deaths than the U.S. I imagine it's even lower now. I, I did those numbers maybe five years ago, and the U.S. has had a sort of murder surge since then and an increase in suicides. So... I don't know of any combination of, of gun laws short of full Australian buybacks that approaches that. So there's going to be some segment of the Democratic base that is perpetually disappointed. And we're also just going to continue to have mass shootings, which are going to continue to sort of lead to political moments like the current one. And I think that is true even in a world where Congress passed universal background checks and a ban on magazines holding more than 10 rounds or a uh, sort of a national red flag law, any of the other sort of maximalist goals of uh, gun control advocates at a, a national level. I think the question I am more focused on is if there's like a go for a kind of very milk toast. <laughs> Uh, not particularly strong bill that can get 10 Republican votes that can get not just Susan Collins, but Todd Young and uh, Marco Rubio and, and a few other people on board with it. Sort of what is what is the way to craft that that would reduce the most deaths? And I think 
uh, Rubio has been talking about giving grants to states if they pass red flag laws, which are these these laws sort of allowing family members or, or police to re report people as a danger to themselves or others and, and then have their sort of guns temporarily seized. Florida has a law like that that Rick Scott signed when he was governor. And so my inclination is that of the menu, um, we, we have decent evidence that those reduce suicides um, if they're actually used. And that seems promising to me. It seems a lot more promising than sort of restrictions on what kind of guns you can sell. But yeah, I guess that's that's the question I'm trying to ask myself is uh, sort of if you if you get one shot and it can't the bill can't do a whole lot because it has to win over at least 10 moderate Republicans or sort of the 10 least conservative Republicans rather what is the ideal package that that fits those requirements and i'm not super confident but but i i lean red flag law yeah and like i guess in terms of realism it seems to me like i've been speaking to a few researchers in the last week who aren't necessarily like frustrated that um every time there's a mass shooting there's a conversation about how to pre prevent the next one but um just that you know rather than focusing on preventing mass shootings specifically, they're hoping to sort of shift the conversation on preventing gun violence overall. And like, that's not to minimize the urgency of responding to move all day, but to say that like mass shootings are only part of a broader epidemic where 110 Americans die at the end of a gun every day. Um, and, you know, that constant sort of drip drip uh, of gun deaths is, is sort of more where the public focus should be. And, and even these sort of small incremental measures could could make a huge difference on, on th that kind of scale. So the incrementalist approach, if we can, if we can do anything, um, you know, I think at this point, any action would be welcome. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to, to talk about uh, the second of our three white papers this week. So stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. 
Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. And we're back. Uh, so our next white paper is by criminologists uh, Jillian Peterson, James Densley, and Gina Erickson, and it's titled Presence of Armed School Officials and Fatal and Non-Fatal Gunshot Injuries During Mass School Shootings, United States, 1980 to 2019. So that's a pretty decent summary of what it's about. But Badara, you suggested this paper. Can you summarize what they find here? In contrast to the 400-page RAND study, this is a pretty simple and limited set of quantitative findings on the effects of armed school guards in a data set that is where at least one person was shot at school, plus a data set of places when someone was apprehended with guns and the intent to shoot indiscriminately, which is a bit of a weird kludge. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about in the first segment kind of is a good measure of just how hard it is to talk about stuff about mass shootings in particular, because you end up, you know, having to in order to get any statistical power whatsoever, go into thwarted cases as well as successful cases, because this this is a particularly rare and spectacular form of violence. And the bottom line finding is that not only is there no reduction effect in the likelihood or severity of school shootings by having armed guards. But in fact, the most important factor in how severe a school shooting is, is the kind of heaviness of the weaponry used, right? Like the presence of a semi-automatic. The second most important factor in increasing the severity of a school shooting is whether there is an armed guard on site, which is to say that school shootings, when they happen, are more violent when there is someone there who is supposed to be preventing the shooter from getting in and causing damage. And, you know, it's not like the authors aren't making a terribly strong claim or aren't making a terribly strong, like, argument as to why they think that is. There is a known effect when, you know, people, when essentially having a weapon makes you more likely to use it, seeing someone with a weapon makes you more likely to use yours. Um, But, you know, there could also like be other factors involved, although they do control for, you know, school characteristics and that sort of thing. But it is a pretty decent indication that um, the armed school guard is not a panacea, which is something that I think was pretty obvious, both in the initial account of what happened to Duvalde and in the subsequent changes to that narrative as more information has come out and as it has become increasingly clear that instead of attempting and being unable to stop the shooter from getting into the school, the armed guards were just not there and had to get there after the 911 call. There does appear to have been a certain amount of misdirection that happened uh in order to make that to to make that seem like less of a problem after the fact which frankly does kind of call into question the data that's being used for this study because it's not clear if this kind of rigorous questioning into the timeline of every single incident in that data set if it wouldn't come out that maybe some guards were not on campus when the shooter entered and then tried to make it seem like they were i guess my question for you folks is like Going from the RAND study where it's extremely cautious, they're looking at a whole lot of different studies across a whole lot of things, to something like this where it's just like very focused on one policy and a much more limited data set. I keep going back and forth on this, right? Because it seems it's really tempting for me to take the study and be like, look, 
armed guards at schools are bad for school shootings. But given everything that we kind of saw with the RAND study, I also feel a little bit weird about hinging too much on any single study of the effects of gun policy. So like, how are you guys as much more experienced gun policy reporters? How do you kind of militate between the desire to like know things and the limitations of any individual study on this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like in this case, you have to sort of view it in the context of everything else, right? Given that this is sort of the number one Republican talking point right now, and to the extent that we have evidence against this being effective, I I don't think that that should be the number one Republican talking point. But, you know, at the same time, do we entirely discount it? Um, I I don't think so either. Um, But it does seem that, like, this isn't sort of the only incidence of the good guy with a gun theory not really panning out. I'm referring to sort of Wayne LaPierre's comments after Sandy Hook um, that sort of became the sort of marching orders for the entire um, gun rights movement. And and that's sort of been the, the same line that Republicans have repeated in every mass shooting since. Um, and I know we'll get into this later, but Republicans basically have, have used um, that line of reasoning to pass legislation loosening gun control laws um, in in the aftermath of mass mass shootings. So, you know, that this is an important piece of evidence, but obviously weigh it in the context. But um, at this point, we don't have evidence showing that having an armed guard at a school is actually an effective way to prevent mass shootings. So that, that should also color our perspective. Yeah, I also am just somewhat skeptical of, of anything that sort of raises the salience of mass shootings in young people and people in, in schools. There seems to be some decent evidence of uh, sort of contagion in mass shootings uh, that when people like us uh, uh, write about uh, large scale mass shootings, particularly say the name of the shooter, which is something I know at Vox we're careful to, to do as little as possible, but that that can lead to other people sort of going through similar sort of mental distress um, making similar decisions uh, and being sort of inspired by sort of past mass shootings. And it stands to reason to me, and again, we're, we're getting into a place where like, I don't, I don't have like a, even a RAND review quality study on this, let alone sort of uh, an RCT or something that we would usually cite. But it stands to reason that sort of the more people at risk of committing school shootings or mass shootings are thinking about them, the likelier those events are. And so having things like armed guards that are constantly reminding people of this threat and and keeping it sort of at top of mind might have severely negative consequences or at least mildly contagious consequences in a really uh, ugly way. Dylan, do you think that logic also applies to lockdown drills? Probably. Um, I don't know. I I feel like lockdown drills are something we do enough that it feels like we should be able to figure something out there. Um, And and the other side of this is just that like mass shootings are not particularly common. And I mean, they're they're more common than they should be. They're more common in the U.S. than they they are in any other country on on Earth. But they're still relatively rare events. And so we're always going to have many fewer mass shootings than we have lockdown drills prepping people for mass shootings. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's some small effect on the margin there. Yeah, I think another thing worth mentioning, just to sort of examine the psychology of, of shooters, uh, school shooters as well, is just that they're often actively suicidal. So the fact that an armed guard is present might actually be an incentive rather than a deterrent. 
and and also they're often like students at the school, so it, it's not really clear whether an armed guard would sort of react in the moment, um, knowing that they were sort of a familiar face. So mm-hmm. I think those are two points that we don't have necessarily good research about, but might be good context here in, in under interpreting the results of this study. Yeah, I mean, that the like suicide by school resource officer thing is very real, Nicole, and very important. And also, I think, is maybe like a different way to get at the how do we talk about the proportion of gun deaths that are suicides, you know, like, like as part of a gun violence problem, as well as just part of a kind of like suicide slash deaths of despair slash mental health problem. If the option of committing suicide by SRO means that you're almost certainly taking down other people with you, that is something that it is like more important to stop. And, you know, to the extent that that is a viable option for someone as a, kind of response to suicidal ideation, that does seem like something that should be paid particular attention to and minimized because it is it is coming from the same place as a, you know, single victim gun suicide, if you will, but it has very different impacts. Yeah. And I think teens are more likely to use a gun to commit suicide than, than any other population group. So to the extent that we can limit their access to guns, perhaps by raising the minimum age to, for them to own or purchase a gun to 21, um, that may help sort of address that that underlying problem. Which, yeah, which is something that the, the RAND study found some evidence for. Um, I think they, they found a, an effect on firearm suicides of, of the, the age limit laws there and not on overall suicides. And so there's always some risk of displacement from uh, firearm methods of suicide to other methods. But firearms are also much likelier to turn an attempt into a death um, that the the percentage of suicide attempts with firearm that the result in death is much much higher than attempts using other methods and so there's even if it's just a displacement displacing to things that people are more likely to survive strikes me as a win of sorts I do kind of want to emphasize because like it is the the good guy with a gun thing is part of conversations about like the physical footprint of a school and designing the architecture to make it harder for someone to force an entry. Like by definition, for all of the reasons we've been discussing about the rarity of mass shootings in general and school shootings in particular, there's never going to be a good evidence base one way or the other on these. And so the amount of energy that gets spent on them is should always, I think, be understood as an expression of the kind of underlying belief that an armed society is a polite society, right? And that, like, it is coming from an attempt to propose policy solutions to school shootings that are not about reducing gun availability or reducing, you know, broader gun violence. And, like, when you have a strong pre-existing ideological commitment to the widespread availability of guns, like that it is understandable that you are, that people are looking for other policy avenues. But like, I think it's just, it's, it's fair to say that this is something where there's never, there's never going to be an RCT on having an SRO or having a single door. And that's not necessarily the purpose that this is serving in the debate. So we're going to take one more break, uh, but when we're back, we're going to talk, about a paper on how state legislatures respond to school shootings. So stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. 
It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. And we're back. Uh, so our final white paper is by economist Michael Luca, Deepak Mohotra, and Christopher Poliquin, and it's titled The Impact of Mass Shootings on Gun Policy. So the authors specifically look at how state legislatures respond to mass shootings that receive significant press coverage, and they find that legislators respond strongly, introducing about 15% more bills after a state has a mass shooting. But the kind of bills actually enacted into law uh, varies a lot by state. So in Republican-controlled states, uh, mass shootings lead to the passage of bills loosening gun regulations, whereas uh, Democratic-controlled legislatures don't become likelier to pass gun bills of any kind, and laws tightening gun control don't become likelier to pass anywhere. So the paper kind of uh, implies we're in a doom loop where mass shootings might cause copycat mass shootings, but even if they don't, they they refocus public discussion around guns, uh, which leads to the loosening of gun regulations. And depending on what exactly those regulations are, that might lead to more mass shootings. So uh, this is horrifically depressing, but, but what do you guys make of it? I mean, I think that for me, this gets to a really fundamental question for what, what you might call like gun violence hawks, right? Like strong supporters of more aggressive gun regulation. And that is, like, are you currently engaging in a political program to try to move the needle on policy? Or do you feel that this is too deep and central a moral failing of America? And therefore, like, it's not like, you can't necessarily see a policy solution that you would find satisfactory. Because if it is the latter, then like, it is fine and important when you feel that your society is completely failing you and that nothing short of radical change is necessary to just articulate that this is not acceptable and you will not stand for it. But that means that you may be engaging in in like behaviors and responses that might be in the short term and on the small scale, making it less likely that those kind of incremental, you know, small bore state level changes happen. And I think that that's just something that people who are engaged citizens in a society need to sit with. Like it's 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 okay. You don't need to be doing every single thing to, you know, to, you don't need to titrate every Facebook post that you write to maximize the odds of incremental gun legislation getting passed in the Senate or in your state legislature. But if that is what you want to do, then it is worthwhile thinking about what are the ways in which the current cycle of mass shooting calls for stricter gun regulation, red states take those calls for stricter gun regulation as a as an opportunity to pass looser gun regulation, repeat, if your goal is to arrest that cycle, that's a different program for what you should do personally than if your goal is simply to say that you shall not stand for this. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I also feel like I don't know. One thing that the paper points out is just that, you know, that these results are kind of consistent with what we understand about how politicians tend to focus on issues that they own. And Democrats haven't historically owned the gun issue. And and that's partially because the Republican base is so much more motivated and organized around gun rights. Like, you know, the membership of the NRA way eclipses that of any 
kind of comparable gun control group. But I think we have to ask, like, why that is and, and why this is not sort of an issue that is central to a Democrat identity and, and how sort of you can galvanize political will um, around it. And, you know, maybe it is by calling for for broader, like, more radical reforms, because um, that that may get people energized in, in the wake of a mass shooting in particular. But it also means that you can't kind of ignore these 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 potentially smaller wins. Um, but but yeah, I think it's the perennial question of how Democrats actually mobilize their their base around a particular issue um, that they're maybe not naturally inclined to. Yeah. Well, and I think it also raises questions about what can be done uh, under federalism. That a, a common concern you hear um, in cities like Chicago is. Illinois abuts Wisconsin and especially Indiana, which have much looser uh, gun laws. So even if Chicago and Illinois have incredibly strict gun control, people can just drive to Gary, buy assault weapons and and come in. And I I know there's a lot of sort of conflicting claims about how common this is and and what a factor it is, but it does suggest that that you you can't kind of have a system akin to what you have for, for other policies, like some... Blue states wanted to expand Medicaid, red states didn't, and so blue states just expanded Medicaid. <laughs> um, and that leads to sort of unequal consequences for the people living in those states, but that is something that principally affects the state itself. But if individual states' uh, sort of gun policy decisions affect gun violence in other states, it suggests that the sort of the current dynamic of maximalist policy in a handful of, of populous blue states and uh, maximalist deregulation uh, elsewhere don't lead to just sort of contained separate regimes that reflect the wishes of people in, in that community. Yeah, I mean, there's also something to be said for the relationship between state-level policy and nationalized politics, right? Like, in practice, nothing in the last few years has indicated that anyone is coming for the guns of the people of Texas. That has not stopped the specter of somebody coming for the guns of the people of Texas from motivating Texas to loosen its gun laws. And it is probably not a coincidence that the collapse of the NRA as an organization, which, by the way, like should not be under like the extent of that should not be understated. The NRA as an as an organization is like absolutely in shambles and has been like beset by massive governance issues and a host of other problems. But like, it's probably not a coincidence that that all happened during the administration of a Republican president, because the single best thing the NRA has had going for it in fundraising is the prospect of a Democratic president taking away people's guns. And so it's it's very like, this is not something that any individual person or really any individual media outlet can really address. But it's worth thinking about the extent to which the federalism not only has the policy consequences that Dylan discussed, but also creates the political specter of some other some other part of your country doing things you don't like that might affect you down the line. And therefore, you need to kind of escalate preemptively just in case that might happen in future. I think one place where things can go from here, um, Jennifer Doliak had a nice piece a few years ago after I forget which mass shooting, one of them, um, where she was going through some policies that uh, that might reduce gun violence or gun suicides uh, that are not 
typically thought of as gun control. So an example would be uh, summer jobs programs for for teens uh, in cities. Um, there seems to be decent evidence that that reduces participants' risk of, of dying in gun-related incidents. Similarly, sort of cognitive behavioral therapies or group therapy programs like the, the Be a Man program for uh, young men in Chicago seems positive. It was interesting to find out that uh, now in 2019, Congress did agree to, to study gun violence for the first time in, in decades. Um, and so we have a $25 million annual budget on, on gun research split between the CDC and the NIH. And among the things they're looking at are things that really don't seem like gun control. Um, so there's there's an evaluation of Shoot Safe, which is a, a website teaching children how to safely handle firearms. There's a look into repurposing vacant lots in cities uh, so that you can create like community gardens or, or parks. Um, this is something that criminologists I know have gotten very excited about and, and seems uh, sort of promising in places where it's been tried. But like making a park out of a vacant row house is is not gun control <laughs> as I can I traditionally uh, conceive of it. And that is not like satisfying in a lot of ways after an event like this, but it also might point the way towards something where you can uh, you can get something done in a less polarized way. Yeah, I'm just not sure that people, like Dara said, you know, the the most ardent supporters of gun control are going to be satisfied with those kinds of answers. Um, but maybe yeah. maybe yeah, we shouldn't I'm, be tailoring I'm, our I'm policy. I'm picturing somebody <laughs> thinking about the like shoot safe website for whom the biggest concern is the prevalence of guns in American society, period. And it just like, man, it's just really hard to make policy for a country of 300 million people when those people have wildly disparate moral commitments on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I agree that sort of the, the sort of cycle of recrimination isn't going anywhere. Um but yeah, I also know people who aren't going to be happy until the U.S. has single-payer health care, and I would be surprised if the U.S. has single-payer health care before I die. Um, so, I don't know. Politics is the long, slow, boring of hard boards. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you if you either, either want to uh, legalize machine guns uh, with no age limits or get rid of all semi-automatic weapons, it's, it's going to be a long path ahead for you. <laughs> Thank you to Dara Lind and Nicole Neria for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Remember, The Weeds has a newsletter. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter to sign up. We will be back in your feeds next week with a panel discussion about healthcare workers with Dylan Scott. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release 
with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.